Hello and welcome to our latest edition of the GRC and Cybersecurity Podcast. In today's episode, in our Leaders in Cyber and Risk series, we have a very special guest, Robin Smith. So hi, Robin. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about the company that you work for and what they do? Hi, Matthew. Yeah, so my name is Robin Smith. I'm the Head of Cyber and Information Security for Aston Martin Largondo, which is a British independent manufacturer of luxury sports cars based uh, in the UK, but with a global presence. And, you know, if you're familiar with the Aston Martin brand from either Formula One or from James Bond films, you'll know that we produce kind of prestige vehicles that are aspired to across the world. I must get asked on a on a daily basis which version I drive. I don't drive one, unfortunately. I've not been that fortunate. But yeah, very proud to work for Aston Martin. It's a fantastic company and I'm, I'm enjoying my time. So you don't get a company car then, Robin? <laughs> not as yet. Maybe if I can kind of raise my game, I'll, uh, I'll be lucky enough to get one of the new DBX. And hope springs eternal on that one. Fantastic. So yeah, we're really pleased to have you on today. So It'd be really great if you could tell us a little bit about your role. And then one of the other things is, and we'll move on to it. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your role first. So can you tell us a little bit about your role at Aston Martin? Sure. So essentially, I'm the conscience of the organization when it comes to cyber and information security. So I act as CISO, as board advisor for information and cyber standards and services. And this role really encapsulates being a risk strategist that assesses the external and internal threats the environment in which we use information uh, services. I try to project, you know, what do we need to protect against, but what opportunities can we also exploit, you know, by having a positive innovation-driven mindset. It's not just about defending the organization, which has become a cliche of the CISO role. It's also about exploiting opportunities and turning, you know, those events, those incidents, those disruptions into key learnings so we can do better going forward. And for me, you know, I'm a big believer in freedom through information for the corporate and for the individual. So for Aston Martin, we're looking to derive as much value as possible for from our information so we can transform and improve. Fantastic. And is that something that, I guess, you brought to Aston Martin? Was that there before, that kind of attitude? Is that something that you, you're trying to instill in the organisation? I think Jung calls it synchronicity. I've arrived at an organization that can, that well mirrors my own perspective on freedom through information. So Aston Martin has a, a rich and, and fantastic history of innovation, of development, of producing these, these works of art. If I'm having a bad day, which is rare, I will walk around into the factory and see a DB11 or the Valkyrie or the any number of vehicles are going out. And it, it sounds trite, but they're quite inspiring. So for me, you know, the synchronicity is about wanting to be at the very top. It's about hitting those levels. And I'm, I'm an ambitious individual. I'm ambitious for my team. We have aligned really well with the approach that Aston Martin takes as a whole organization. It goes across everything from you know, walking through the front door to the DB11 being produced on the front line. My team aligned to that uh, excellence and those values around collaboration, communication, and delivery. So it's, a, it's been a wonderful kind of synchronous situation to arrive there. So I know you told a little bit about your role, but and there might be a lot of our listeners who are new to this space or it's in a space that they're getting into. Can you give a bit of an overview of how you got into your current role and kind of what your career pathway has been? Sure. It's been by design. Some things that happen in life are by accident. Some are involuntary. But I've worked for 20 years as a senior manager in all aspects of information. So I started with law enforcement as a information and knowledge manager, which is where I got my first exposure to this idea of 
the value of information and the fact that it could open a lot of doors. And this is where the, the philosophy of freedom through information first developed. And I really enjoyed working for law enforcement. I worked for five different uh, police forces in the UK, including the Independent Office for Police Conduct. And law enforcement is really good because it's problem orientated. We're not blind to the fact that there are problems in UK policing. But the one thing it does really well is it directs its resources to what is potentially an infinite amount of crime. And, infinite, you know, crime's an eternal problem, as they say. But it uses intelligence really well. And that's informed the way that I work through my career. I, I moved from being an information management lead for law enforcement into being a data privacy lead for the NHS. And that was fascinating because this was pre-GDPR, just as uh, the UK was preparing for a massive extension in the data privacy regime. And my interest in data privacy was always from that individual perspective, you know, this notion of how much of a right is privacy. And some people don't quite understand that it's a qualified right under the various uh, conventions and issues. But it is a right, and it's been exercised really well under GDPR and film. I, frankly, being candid, I didn't find the overall, you know, the data protection industry itself is a slightly arcane and compartmentalized industry. It's a bit of a closed shop. It was interesting to work in that industry, but I didn't see my future there. And I, over the last sort of 10, 15 years, I could see that security was becoming a key dimension of the corporate body. And, you know, as an ambitious individual, Sometimes when you work in information or data privacy, you're working in the broom cupboard at the back of the organization. For me, I want to be right at the forefront, helping shape the agenda, helping change the organization. And security over the last decade has become absolutely essential to delivery. And so by design, I acquired experience with information and data privacy and, and, and did a number of security qualifications with the attitude of coming into the industry and and maybe offering a slightly different perspective because there are a lot of technical people in security. They are superb. They know the technologies. They know the history. They know the yes. ins and outs of the protocols. But but that leads to a slightly homogenous perspective on security, which is predicated on things like the OSI model, things like MITRE attack. All good stuff, but a slightly reductive and a slightly simplified take. When you have new voices like myself coming into the industry, I'm not suggesting that uh, you know we've got a any silver bullets to fire. What I'm saying is it, it changes the kind of conversation in the industry to consider things like data privacy, to consider knowledge management and these dimensions. It expands the palette of the security industry as a whole. And I, I would make the same point about more females being represented in security or more people in minority. You know, these are essential to creating a dialectic in the industry to expand and improve our perspective. So it was by design. I did go from being a director in uh, the UK police service to being a humble information security officer when I took that decision. That was a, that was a tough pill to swallow. Yeah. But on reflection, it was the right choice. It was a, an informed choice. And to arrive where I'm at now, you have to be careful because you don't want to feel like you've kind of completed the journey. To arrive here and to be having the experiences I've had with the first year at Aston Martin, it's been well worth the times when I maybe wasn't feeling so kind of... Uh, okay about where I've got to in my career so yeah I'm enjoying it whilst I can yeah and one of the things I was I was about to pick up on there that you said is is different perspectives of CISO information security leaders like you can get into this and you don't have to have a technical background you've got to have the willingness to learn to understand but like I say there's always a good well I would say a good opportunity to kind of allow kind of those different perspectives to come in so it evolves like you say the CISO role the security roles so it's not always just focused on the technical things. It's like, how do we 
And I think one of the things people often struggle with is bringing it up to a business perspective because they end up getting very focused on extremely technical things and rather than focusing on, okay, what does that technical problem have a perspective? What is the impact on the business as a whole? So when you're talking to senior leadership, how do we say the impact of this thing happening could bring down this critical business service? And that's the kind of level that, from what you're talking about, you're adding that kind of perspective. No, that's exactly right. There's that Einstein quote about not solving problems at the same level at which they were conceived. And I think it's very difficult these days because we live in kind of uh, stratified times where we don't like to talk about cultures or disciplines being in conversation. You know, have this idea of cultural appropriation. But to be a bit touch controversial, if you look at the history of music, the history of music is about different cultures generating different insights into musical forms. And then those forms interacting, interrelating out of which we get jazz and we get blues and we get rock and roll. Without overstating it, you know, that dialectic between what we come up with, what we contrast with, what we interact with, that's the same model, that's the same dialectic that the security industry needs to go for when it links into other dimensions of the organisation. It's difficult for security people and for technical people because you do get compartmentalised. My specialty is alignment and harmonization because, number one, I don't know so much about you know, the details of Azure. Well, I was on my Azure training this week. <laughs> my specialty is taking a look at the whole. Take a look at the whole and see where the links are, see where the harmonization is possible, and to take a view about, ultimately, what value is this added? I don't really care about port 443. I did care about that. <laughs> I'll exaggerate. I don't really care about 443. What I care about is Aston Martin producing and selling more of its fantastic vehicles. Everything else is subordinate to that value stream. So my specialty really is that alignment and teasing out, you know, why we support this. Don't always do it perfectly, but that's why we need those different voices to just change the terms of the debate. So maybe it'd be quite good to give a bit of a view of where Aston Martin are in their journey around information security. I know some things you might not be able to say, but kind of what size of the team where are they in, in their journey towards, I guess, where you want this division or department to be? So Aston Martin has always done security well. You know, you, you, we haven't been affected by major damaging incidents such as uh, British Airways or Talk Talk have endured. They've always used security tooling in a efficient and coordinated fashion. So we have strategic partnerships with Darktrace and Sentinel One, which offer superb technology which offer a forensic analysis of the threat environments. What's been missing and what my role has been in the last year is just that orchestration of, you know, we've got great security tooling and I can compare it well with the nuclear industry where I worked previously. You know, the nuclear industry, thankfully, does security tooling really well. It also does the orchestration of tooling, process and people really well. And I've brought that mindset from nuclear where we just need to tease out you know, where the tooling is successful and where it can be improved. We need to make sure that it's integrated and interoperable. We also need to build it upon a human firewall that is litter and is able to respond to a change in threat environment. You know, there's no good saying to staff a year ago, right, this is the latest kind of tools and tactics that the cyber criminal is, is using. It moves on so quickly that actually what you'll need to build within your staff groups is digital literacy. And it's a concept I go on about a lot because I think it's essential. Aston Martin is on a journey to fully optimize its technology, but have that integrated with a workforce that is agile, vigilant, and is able to kind of 
utilize information assets to the highest possible degree. And it goes back to what is a real kind of issue for me, which is don't just have a defensive mindset. What we have done with Aston Martin is to go from a defensive, protective fortification mindset to much more of a, an attitude towards innovation and collaboration around security. So those partnerships I've mentioned, Dark Truth and Sentinel One, have become not just tech providers, but also architects of new ways of working. So we introduced new standards for our policy framework. We've introduced new training, and we're just modeling a, a cyber threat intelligence management approach that is going to really address not just the current threat environment, but the emerging threat environment to make sure that we maintain our position, not just as a, a leading automotive manufacturer, but we want the team to be recognized as a beacon for other teams in the UK and internationally. And we have the back end, we have the brand reputation, and we have the partnerships that are allow us to build towards a really integrated and well-regarded position. And that's just as important for us as making sure that our cyber resilience is constantly evolving. So I think one of the things then is maybe talk about what your team structure is like. So it's always interesting for other like, security leaders to see. So how have you structured your team? Who do you report to? And, and what are the key things that you do with your team as a leader? Yeah, it's a great question. So we have a, a novel take on this, which is we work for a really progressive CIO, Steve O'Connor, who is overseeing a massive digital transformation for Aston Martin, which is really delivering a lot of value. I really like working with Steve. You know, it's a pleasure to be able to kind of be complimentary about your boss. If we go back through my career, I don't think I'd quite have the same thing to say, <laughs> naming no names. We established uh, cyber information security as a commissioning body because it's 2022. My desire for having 50, 60, 70 staff is over. I've done that in the past. I can't say I enjoyed it too much. There's too many PDRs to be doing. We've established the cyber team as a commissioning body to make sure that we use security management as a service, as our principle going forward. So I have four staff who work for me, so a principal analyst and three support analysts. They are focused on acting as commissioners across technology, training, and policy audit to ensure that we call off security services as they're required. So I've been working for 20 years. You know, when I started, I wanted as many staff as possible and being a big kahuna on campus, you know, you want that. <laughs> the reality for my strategy now is that resource and delivery is what it's all about for Aston Martin. And yeah. I don't want to have my own pen tester who may or may not be occupied 52 weeks of the year. My staff will verify that I want you occupied 100% of the time and evenings and weekends and on holiday. I'm being a bit... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for Aston Martin, we understand that having all of that internal capability is a mistaken approach. We have a model which is about commission. So we commissioned Darktrace to do superb technology provision. We commissioned Sentinel One to do our uh, active EDR. And we're working with a number of new partners to do our security testing, to do our digital literacy programs, and to do our policy compliance audits so that we can tap into expertise that's in the market and it's often at the very top of the market. You know, we're engaging with a couple of providers who are you know, experts in the connected car regulation, which is a new dimension of compliance. We are working with uh, Crest accredited security testers that I would struggle to employ. I think that informs our approach to commissioning, which is it's not about the number of bodies, it's about delivery. And so we established that uh, annual forward plan which engages our partners in a, a relentless drive for delivery and for improvement and it's easier i would suggest 
to commission security testing by a third-party body and to manage that closely and to demand excellence and value from that than it is to necessarily recruit someone, keep them at the very top of the industry, make sure they're motivated and make sure they're delivering. So the commission embodied model is something I think is the future. And as we see more services established as a service, so ECISO as a service has emerged, VDPO has emerged as a service, organizations should realize these provide so much opportunity rather than the threat to their base. You know, I think people think it's, you know, Turkey's voting for Christmas, but it's not. Anyone that's a, a good CISO will remain key to commissioning and key to delivery in a fashion that's separate from those external services. So it's a model I believe in. It's a model I will sort of pursue as we go forward. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's where people are going, isn't it? It means you, you can spin up whatever you need as you need it. You can always have access to the best possible people. You are then obviously extremely flexible and you can, you, like you say, you've got complete flexibility based on business demands rather than having people maybe sat around keeping their skills current. You can always then go and access the best skills as long as you know who your partners are, those trusted partners that you work with. It just makes it so much easier for you to get access to what you need based on, like you say, the business demands and, and things that are coming through. I mean, I've spoken to VC, so it's a fascinating job. That It's always changing. There are new demands. It keeps you sharp. And it means that you have to stay in that zone of, you know, permanently developing your skills. And if you look at it from an employee's perspective, I'm just about that generation that expected to have the same job for 30 years. Frankly, I've never done that. It doesn't interest me in the slightest. But actually being engaged in different environments, in different dynamics, in different circumstances on a regular basis, that's going to make you much better at your job. I'm not suggesting it hasn't got some downsides, of course, and, you know, everyone wants to make a living. The fact is the security industry changes at the speed of light. And unless you're adaptive, you're going to get left behind. So it's important to accept the reality and to respond to reality rather than hope that you know we could go back to 1985. People just work for one company their entire life and that's exactly what we do. Um, so I think the next thing that we want to ask you is where are you currently spending most of your time? What are the key priorities that you're focused on for probably, I guess, the first half of this year? We've been spending a lot of time doing our security architecture to orchestrate our EDR, our external protection, and our internal security testing tooling to make sure that we can derive as much value from that as possible. Because we work in a a global organization as a a boundary that essentially the car is now the boundary, which is driving across America or Asia. We have uh, compliance requirements that mean that that new boundary needs to be protected across its life cycle. So it might be five years, it might be 10 years, it might be 50 years. So making sure the security architecture is able to respond to those new requirements is really important because it's always a surprise to me. The notion is we spend a lot of time talking about the technology, but the technology always works quite well, always functions quite well until we get to the user. So I spent a lot of time kind of working out an approach which is predicated upon the technology is only successful once a user accepts it, you know, anyone can do, you know, I know technical people can design the system, any system in the world, they're fantastically developed and delivered until the user is using it in anger and it's efficient and effective. And it's a slightly, I think Evgeny Morozov calls this tech solutionism. But I think the final step in any technology deployment is making sure that the employees are comfortable in using and developing and delivering those solutions to the value of the organization. That's a slightly labored way of saying I spent a lot of time integrating our security tooling, understanding where our gaps are, 
and doing simulation testing to work out how we needed to build further resilience. So I think my staff are a little bit sick of it at this time, but until I'm satisfied, <laughs> we will be doing more double ransomware simulations to work out what our response is and integrating our technology solutions with our working practices because they haven't necessarily been so well implemented previously. So a lot of time on security architecture, keeping in mind the human dimension and the compliance dimension. So it's always difficult to kind of think back and go, what have I been doing? Because Aston Martin works at the speed of light. It's an awesome place to work for that, but you are traveling quickly. So it's sometimes difficult to recall quite what you've been on, but it's been enjoyable for me because it's raised my technical insight, my technical awareness, which is great but it's also meant that we're deriving more value. So I can say the mantra for my team is, if I spend a pound, I want two pounds of value or or three pounds or four pounds or five pounds. And we're moving towards a lean technical architecture, which is delivering value for the organization today and into the future. And that's an important dimension for me. Yeah, and some interesting things that you picked up on. I think one of the things that, especially again, from my background is when you talk about technology and implementing, a lot of this comes down to, there's a lot of great technology out there, but if you're not, thinking how you want it to work and you understand how it fits within your organization. You can buy the best tool in the world. It will not help your organization. You will not achieve those outcomes. A lot of this is linked back to not going and always buying the thing that you think is the Rolls Royce, let's say, but you know what I mean? Like you got there and it's about what, what links and works your organization and what gives you the most value. I think people often get caught up in that. They absolutely do. And we're hardwired for novelty. You know, it's not like I don't see new technology and think, wow, I'd like to (laughs) deploy that automated uh, XDR and I'd like to kind of have cloud security by a robot. We're hardwired to explore novelty and new new ways of working. And that's part of the situation in, in the security industry is to comprehend that fact and trying to pick and choose. And my one of my analysts says, be surgical, be surgical about your technology implementation so you're not just fulfilling, scratching the itch of a new toy to play with. We have lots of toys to play with, but I'll be damned if you know we're not going to derive as much value from them as possible. So it's, it's understandable. As long as you recognize the issue of novelty and the issue of technology solutionism, I think that's half the battle. It's then implementing your approach, which, which seeks to kind of uh, leverage those tools to the best effect. One of the things that I wanted to ask you is like, I know you spoke about kind of what you're doing, what, what, I think one of the things I wanted to ask you was what are the big ticket items that you're working on this year as part of, I guess, your budget? Is there any specific, I guess, PCI is probably not as appropriate for you, but ISO 27001 changing. What are the big things this year that you as an organization are going to be putting a lot of time and effort into? We're looking to go cloud first, which is a big change for the organization. And we're looking to exploit multi-cloud tenancy to improve resilience, is to understand that that, that complexity gives us lots of opportunities for cost reduction and to improve value around things like storage and things like microservices. So there's a large push towards being cloud first. And this is where your positive risk taking comes in, because you can't necessarily have a cloud first strategy that is risk-free or without problems or threats. But I think having been in consultation with Microsoft and with some other vendors, we are looking to deliver that strategy. And I I do that on on the predicate of keeping it secure, of keeping it protected and keeping the information at the heart of the organization. We have emerging compliance requirements called Connected Car, which are part of a UN working party 29 who've 
issued a series of regulations, 155 and 156, that mean that the vehicles themselves have to be protected. So the personal information that is collected by over 50 CPUs on the individual vehicle, you know, 25 million lines of code, these vehicles contain a lot of personal data, a lot of intellectual property, as you might imagine. The UN has stipulated that all automotive uh, manufacturers need to be able to demonstrate compliance with some rigorous standards around the software being updated, the individuals having their information protected and protective monitoring being exercised on vehicles. So that is a a large part of the work that we are doing. And we're lucky to have our own cyber lab to do some of that testing on the vehicles. It's way beyond my knowledge, but, you know, some of my MS are able to kind of do that car hacking on a regular basis. And another dimension is developing the security infrastructure. I've spoken in many conference presentations about digital literacy, but is to promote a constant presence for security in the organization and make uh, security, make vigilance a value for the organization. Because it's it's the tech bit is somewhat self-evident. We need this. We've got to deploy this. The process bit might be, okay, ISO 27000, which we are pursuing, and that links in with the compliance requirements. All of that falls down when you have a workforce that doesn't understand their contribution and doesn't comprehend the value that is placed upon their behavior, their reporting, their kind of response to issues and events. And whilst I've got a big ego, that's that's somewhat evident, we actually want 4,000 security officers. Your production line has to be secure. The public areas have to be secure. When we're sharing the data of our VIPs that are buying our information has to be protected. So there's a whole cycle around making vigilance of value and making sure that our staff comprehend that their day-to-day job is about security protection alongside all of the other demands that are put on them. So that's going to be a permanent campaign built upon some new training and communications products that we're quite excited about. So uh, hopefully we'll debut them during the year. Yeah, and it's one of the biggest things, isn't it, with, with security? It's like you could build the best frameworks and things in the world, but if the reality is if your staff don't understand them, they don't understand why it's important, it's not continuously, I don't want to say drilled in, but reminded to them and they understand why, like you can end up basically building a lot of great things, but again, failing because it's not been adopted, it's not been embedded into the business and they're, they're not coming along that journey with you. And a lot of people get very focused in the details rather than going actually if we don't get the business working with us and we don't see this as a partnership, ultimately we're not going to be successful because we need them to work with us, not against us. I have to say my time in nuclear was was short but instructive, which was their staff are inculcated with the notion of safety and security from day one. You'd expect that given the nature of the industry and you'd expect that given the nature of some of the research that National Nuclear Laboratory were doing. That doesn't mean it's easy to do, but I would say that NNL, where I, where I work briefly, staff are really committed to security. And it demonstrated that this isn't some add-on and it's not alien to people, all of whom walk around with smart devices in their pockets. If you can tap into that emotion around security and safety, you know, by speaking to people about you know, protecting their own online presence, it can be transposed into the corporate environment to say that, you know, the way that you look after your banking details on your phone, well, guess what? You have to do the same for the really important intellectual property that Aston Martin owns. So we're making good progress. I'm positive. I'm a big believer in positive design. If you make things unobtrusive, if you give people good choices, it goes back to that nudge theory that we're doing around a decade ago. If you give people good choices around security, 
they'll take the good choice and make sure that you're protected. And I'm a big believer in pushing that further. I think one of the other things that, again, we've had a global pandemic, that thing called COVID going on for the last couple of years. What did you learn during that? I guess adapting to things like working remotely and other things and kind of how have you applied that lessons learned over the last or well, probably six, seven months and as we come out of this pandemic? I guess number one, the hero of the pandemic was the cloud. It was a fantastic response that we had this infrastructure seemingly unseen that was enabling the rapid deployment of remote working that really didn't disrupt the service so much. I've worked for two different organizations under the pandemic and was given a laptop on day one, was secondly given the trust to go and deliver, even by a boss that I hadn't actually met in in physical reality. (laughs) And I was also trusted to look after technology and teams that were, you know, scattered all over the country. So I think the technical expertise that went into that rapid transfer to remote working, you know, tech people are quite modest. They should have been kind of taking all the plaudits for that sort of transition because it was seamless, it was rapid, it was without so much disruption, and it was stable. You know, I worked for a central government department that did it with absolute aplomb, and, you know, I don't understand it myself. I'd be demanding sort of multiple bonuses on the back of it. So I think what it revered was we do have agility and the ability to adapt in terms of our technical posture. I think it also demonstrated the teams I work with, this idea of trust, this idea that you can trust your staff to be at home and still be grinding sort of eight, nine, 10 hours a day to deliver because there is this sort of fanciful idea of, well, they're working at home. They must be out kind of walking around the park or going down the shop. (laughs) Maybe they do do that, but as part of the kind of social contract with their employer, they're also logging on in the evenings and the weekends, and they're also taking care of issues when they're outside of it. So I think it revealed that the dynamics of your team aren't as reduced to kind of if you can see them working, they're working. It, it yeah. revealed that people take pride in what they do, and certainly the teams I worked with, people worked as hard, if not harder, under the kind of remote model. And it proved that whilst there were concerns around resource, around traffic, around access, and you know things like joiners, movers, and leaves, I've changed job twice in the pandemic, nothing to do with pandemic, but it did reveal that those processes, those hygiene processes have to be kind of nailed down. Otherwise, you can be losing assets left, right, and center. And for, for Aston Martin, we do that well, so we don't want to be losing trade secrets. But I think it revealed to me as a manager, really interested and important, issues that then inform the way that I deal with my staff. You know, they've shown that they could be trusted to deliver. They've shown that they could be trusted to work remotely. And it also revealed that maybe we don't have to just recruit in the immediate area around South Birmingham, which is where Aston Martin are based. We consider, you know, if we've got a remote working model, our catchment area has just expanded to the borders of the UK, the borders of the EU and the borders of the whole world. So there's lots in there not necessarily a bit technically orientated, but yeah, no, no. You know, I think what it does is it changes the conversation around the workplace and it changes the conversation around the art, the possible. And as a manager, your whole job is about the art of the possible. Yeah, and what we've seen the same, especially with my team is like, obviously we all went remote. I had a very young team, but I think it's trusting them and letting them kind of learn a little bit, give them that little bit of space. And like I say now, like you trust them implicitly, you don't, have to feel like you're sat in the office all the time watching them. And look, you, I wasn't doing that anyway, but some of the work environments that I've worked at maybe have had that approach where you don't leave till after five o'clock, but even if you've got nothing to do, but 
I think what you want to be doing is people to be trusted and then think that actually that's exactly the environment they want to work in. And they see the value in working like in their, not in their own time, but being flexible in it working with the company. So they can do things like you say, like I go for a run at lunchtime now because I can, because then I'll work in an evening, right? But I don't see that as a, but nobody's chasing up on what time I do work. It's it, like you say, it's that flexible work agreement. As long as they're delivering on what you need, you're not worrying about like how much time that the laptop, for example. And it's entirely right. We're all adults. Sometimes yeah. I've worked in places where it's like, I haven't been at school for 30 years or I didn't expect to be back there. And the proof's in the pudding. People who don't deliver, who don't regard that trust as an important sort of part of the relationship, people who abuse that position, well, quite frankly, they'll be found out quite quickly. Yeah, exactly. They'll be removed from my teams very quickly. And, you know, unfortunately, that has happened, but that is in the exception. But yeah, we're in it. The world changes. Nothing like a global pandemic that was, you know, if you think about two years ago, it was terrifying those first few months. But I think it just shows the world changed and the workplace changes, and it's important to acknowledge that. Yeah, I completely agree. So, look, there's only a few more questions, and then obviously we'll, we'll give you some of your time back. But one of the things that's always interesting to ask is, like, obviously you hire people for your team or you're hiring service providers. What are the skills that you think really make a great information security professional? I think... Attitude is the first thing I look for because you can learn lots of skills. I learned how to be a cybersecurity practitioner through diligence, perseverance, tenacity, and commitment. And those values precede lots of different actions that you might be kind of seeing, looking for in recruitment. Don't get me wrong. I don't want a really committed road sweeper or a really committed, yeah. like, you know, again, I'm being a bit flippant. I think when you interview people and when you're looking to recruit to the team, you're looking for a certain amount of chemistry will this person come in and maybe they've got brilliant technical skills, but they've got very limited sort of emotional IQ. Maybe they're not so technical, but they've got a little bit of charisma about them, which means they can probably navigate. You know, it's never one thing or the other. Yeah. You're looking for a blend. But I certainly, I look for ambition. I look for something in the career that has spoken to overcoming a bit of adversity. If you've had it quite easy, like me, we tend to kind of stroll through life and, and take things, uh, you know, as they come. But when you're recruited to security professionals, it's a hard job. There's a cliche about the CISO being the most stressed person in the organization. You know, I've got gray hair, which is probably testament to that fact. It is stressful working in security. So you do need some resilience about you as well. So I always also like to see, you know, your certificates, your experience. What do you do outside of work that makes you a bit more of a rounded person? You don't just want the Securatron 2000 to do something the other <laughs> way. It doesn't make for great kind of collegiate working. You want to see that people can finish a good job and go and do something even more interesting. I'm a filmmaker, or aspiring filmmaker in my spare time. Somebody who works for me is really into sort of play pigeon shooting. Another person is a keen sort of cyclist. You're looking for a package. It means that they're committed, they're professional, They've got an ability to learn and they understand that your career is just not the be all and end of There's other stuff in life like family, like sports, like uh, the new Batman film. You know, these are all important elements, just as important as the DB11. So, again, I think you need to take a human perspective on this rather than have you got a CISP? So what if you've got a CISP? Can you actually solve my problems? I think that's informed by experience. So I can be a little bit flipping. I haven't done recruitment for 20 years, but you are looking for a human that can kind of learn, develop and contribute. That's what you're looking for. Yeah. And again, very similar things. You want someone who obviously works hard, but like they can adapt and you're looking for the right kind of skills that you can mold, really. You're looking for characteristics and you think actually 
they might not have SIS as an example, but they've shown the right aptitude. They're, they're the right kind of person. They fit within the team. And I think this person can really, like you say, we can mold that person. They can, yeah. can work with them. Just two final questions. So the first one is, if you had one wish as a security professional, what security problem would you solve? Double ransomware spooked me a bit. I consider myself a fairly level-headed person and I consider myself informed about future crime as Mark Goodman talked about in his brilliant book, which I could recommend. I think the fact that malicious innovation is so tenacious and so kind of amazingly innovative, I probably would seek to sort of get rid of the time lag between malicious innovation by cyber criminals and our response. If we could just get rid of that asymmetry it would make it a bit more of a fair fight when we're trying to defend the organisation. So, yeah, the asymmetry between us and cyber criminals, that would be great. And then I guess the final question is, uh, we obviously this is a podcast we're wanting to get additional people to come on and talk about security. Is there a security leader or someone that you think is very interesting who we should try and get on this podcast? I really like Tim Grieverson. I think he is a, a CISO with a fantastic experience across a number of industries, really fluent. But the best thing about Tim is that he's a real progressive. He's always looking for what the best and most developed ways of working are. And even speaking to him in the last fortnight, he was talking about the change in the industry from being a CISO, and this is his role. He's become a chief security officer to fuse cyber physical systems into an integrated approach for his whole organization. And I was sat in my chair like, wow, that's a really simple idea, but it's a really powerful and brilliant idea. So always, always prepared to listen to Tim and to kind of soak in his, his insights because there is someone that's right at the top of their game and someone that is um, an asset to the industry. Thank you, Robin. I really appreciate your time for this. Um, can you let our listeners know if there's anywhere they can hear more from you? Is there any place that you want to connect to them, things like LinkedIn or thing where we can post for them? I'm somewhat allergic to social media just because <laughs> I'm, I'm just that type. I'm sporadically on LinkedIn. I might ask if your listeners and viewers like what they've heard, I actually produced a feature documentary called Machina, which is available on machinafilms.com. I'm always keen for people to see that and say nice things about it. If you've got horrible comments, keep them to yourself. But yeah, the history of cybernetics from Russian cosmism to Elon Musk. Or work. It's, it's out there and I, I love people to kind of have a chance to see. It did win two awards. This is my boastful bit. It won an award <laughs> at the um, New York Sound and Vision Film Festival in 2020. So I'm immensely proud, even for its kind of limitations. But yeah, if you get a chance, machinafilms.com for the first part of the, of the planned trilogy. Fantastic, Robin. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you.